It may surprise you to learn that half of our DNA is shared with trees. That's 50% of humanity. But just how connected are we when it comes to our tree relatives? I'm Jane Fritz, and this is People and Trees, a two-part program that explores a variety of ways, past and present, that we relate to trees and forests, and from a variety of perspectives, from indigenous cultures to artists and writers to forest managers and defenders. Trees are essential to our existence, but modern life has made things complicated. Perhaps it's time to forge a new way forward in our relationship with trees. Cedars are the most sacred tree to the Northwest Coastal and Interior Salish peoples, and they also have great powers. Let's begin our story with this prayer from a 1990 recording with the late Lawrence Aripa of the Coeur d'Alene tribe, the Skitsu Umsh. When a woman was going to make a basket from a cedar tree, she would stand in front of that tree and pray to it. You are a mighty tree. You have been shelter to us in the winter. You give us heat in the winter. You give us shade in the summer. You help us at all times. But now I am going to take some of your bark. I will need this bark to make a basket to carry my huckleberries. I ask your forgiveness. I will take only what I need, and I thank you. There's a, there's a lightning strike. See the spiral line coming down that tree? That's, yeah. That's, a, that's lightning. Hit that tree long ago and spiraled around, made that scar. Those marks down there and that little cedar and this other cedar, you see how the bark's scraped? That's from a buck rubbing the velvet off his antlers. Bill Martin sought the refuge of trees after serving in the Vietnam War. He moved to the Cabinet Mountains of northwestern Montana from Berkeley, California. He was burned out on living in the city and fighting its steady encroachment into the natural world. I first spoke to him in 1998 and then again 23 years later. I was really disconnected, shall we say, from my society when I got out of there. I uh, really didn't quite fit into what we're doing on this planet and the way we're going about doing it. And it's been really healing for me to uh, find some place I can plug in to the planet, so to speak. You know, I moved here to be in a more natural, uh, healthy, sane uh, surrounding. I like trees. I feel a, a certain affinity for trees. I just love being out walking about and being part of it. I, I've been in it enough, working in it, learning about it. I've sort of integrated into it. I, I just feel like a squirrel. <laughs> 
or some kind of deer. Or I'm, a, I'm a creature of these woods. This is where I live. It's my native habitat. It's a connection to being part of this planet. I don't feel cut off by concrete and, and noise and electronics. Forests in this part of Montana supply dimensional lumber to the rest of the country for building homes. During those first 20 years of living in Montana, Martin worked as an independent contractor for the U.S. Forest Service, planting new trees. His crew returned millions of conifer seedlings to the ground that had been clear-cut and couldn't regenerate on its own. Clear-cutting completely levels the forest and can destroy fragile soils, including the underground fungal network that helps make a forest into a community of trees. Today, Bill Martin's forest management centers around his own home, a cedar and hemlock forest that also grows Douglas firs, spruce, larch, and birch trees. He practices selective logging, cutting down certain trees while letting others grow. It's uh, pretty magical when you look at these living things here, this huge, this tall, and of course, they get much taller. They're transforming sunlight into life, making life possible for all the other life forms, including us. So, Bill, I remember when the hillside was logged, and I thought, how in the world can you even look out the window at it? But like you say, the trees are back. Yeah. Small-scale things don't bother me at all. So you look at a longer perspective when it comes to forests being cut down? They're dying all over the planet. You know, we're cut, I don't remember the figures, but we're logging at some incredible rate. Plus, with climate change, Things are trying to move, but there's no connectivity for, and no time for seeds to move north. You know, there's more diseases. So in this 23 years since I last spoke with you, so are we in better shape or worse shape regarding forests? It used to be, what volume of timber can we get out of here? And now the management, at least around here on this district anyway, is more, what's it going to look like when we're done? How do we leave it? And that's, that's good. So restoration is possible? Regeneration is possible? The whole thing's not going to die, but uh, it's degraded. But, you know, from a human perspective, I'm not a very uh, optimistic person. The Titanic is steaming full speed ahead for the iceberg. It's We're looking at these tall trees around us. How tall would they be now? I planted those. Okay. So they're about, what, 40 feet, 40 feet tall? You know, I've planted trees that have been logged up along here. Not a whole lot. They used to figure it takes about eight inch was a saw log. Now they cut smaller stuff, but it would take uh, 80 to 100 years to grow an eight inch saw log on average. But then some of them, you know, grow a lot faster depending on the, the site. It's an ecosystem that you have no interest in leaving. No, no, not at all. Since I'm rooted here, this is where I can move from. It's my connection. Nothing much has changed in my attitude, really.
Just south of the border with Canada, in the wild north woods of Idaho, lives my friend, Faye Morris. She's one of the wisest and most connected to nature people I know. Faye is 95 years old and has lived alone in this small log cabin since her husband Bill passed away at age 99 a few years back. Their picturesque wilderness home is like a Christmas greeting card. But February is a crazy time to go visit her, especially with snow and ice along Meadow Creek and the steep road to her longtime home. I really want to know why she stays in such a wild place at her age. It's remote. It's close to nature. I have trees and wildlife, including bears and panthers. I love it. I love it. What I love about coming up and visiting you is your cedar trees. Yes, they're beautiful. I have a number of them, and they survive. They've grown from tiny little creatures to enormous, beautiful spans. Cedar are special, aren't yes. they? Yes, yes. Why is that? I can't tell you, except they are special survivors, and I think they give us the urge of life. Hmm. The urge of life. So what's it like being 95, living in the woods? Well, it's not much different than being 18, except you suddenly find you can't, aren't quite as strong as you used to be. You can't manage certain things. And that's a little frustrating, but you have to have a sense of humor about it and, uh, and not get hung up on the idea that, oh, pretty soon I'm going to die. That's perfectly all right. It's about time I move on and make room for some young person. There's no internet or cell coverage here, but Faye Morris has a landline and listens to public radio from Spokane to stay connected to the outside world, as well as regular visits from her few neighbors. So in winter, she spends much of her time reading. She also writes poetry. I ask what inspires her to take pen to paper. They come to me. I'll be outside and I'll look up at the trees and uh, I think a thought about them. And I know I have to rush in and write it down or I'll forget it. And I do that and once I do, the rest just comes, and I don't go back and make changes. Very few. Occasionally, I'll change a word or a slight variation on it, but never very much. It's just come out. <laughs> when did you start writing poetry? Uh, after I moved here, and actually after I lost Bill. And he used to write some, and I think he's whispered some into my ear. Let me read you a poem. It was the year we had a number of forest fires nearby, and my trees survived, and I went out one morning and looked up at my cedars and the trees that I love that are right here and close to my cabin. And 
I just said, oh, you dear friends, you have survived because the fires had died down and fire season was closed. There they stood, tall and beautiful. It's called Lost. My sweet, sweet friends, a whorl, a bow, and a whorl again. Softly, they breathe out as I breathe in. They whisper gently to me of the everlasting, standing forever as guardians of Earth's skin. They feed the fiery dragon of renewal, and needle or leaf feed the earth with life. It's very, very important to see the light. I see the changes in the mountains and the sky. It's wonderful to watch the changes in the larch trees as they go through their stages. I can't tell you how many times I have painted this scene as a whole scene and some just of larch trees. I can't help it. I have to just keep painting them. <laughs> so. Terrell Jones is a Montana artist whose bright and airy studio looks out towards the Cabinet Mountains, a view her forester husband, Ken Stevens, keeps open and framed by tall trees. Jones spent her career as an art and Spanish teacher, having also lived in Peru. Working mostly in oils and some mixed media, her subjects are primarily trees, including larch, a conifer that turns golden in the fall, then drops its needles in time for winter sleep. I chose trees, and the reason I chose trees is because I grew up on um, the coast of Washington where there were cedar forests. We lived in the forest, um, played in trees, climbed trees, built tree houses. Trees were very, very important to me in, in my own personal landscape, and my father was a logger. So we'd walk through the cedar woods and smell the cedar and go on logging roads on Sundays to see my father's job, you know. It all had to do with forestry. And so it was in that process of exploring what am I going to paint, what am I going to express, was my personal relationship to trees. Her creative journey expanded with world travels. Then a sabbatical to attend graduate school took her art into imagery that reflected an intimacy with trees, close-ups of structures uncannily similar to our own bodies. And I always notice trees. I've, I've traveled a lot. I have taken so many different pictures of trees that really speak to me. Um, there was a tree in Lisbon, Portugal, that was absolutely huge. The branches covered a whole plaza when we were in Africa on a safari, came across this very, very old tree. And it was dying, but it was still standing. And I noticed how many colors were in it. 
So um, I took a picture of that and then came home and did my own rendition of that. But I also went to the Department of Forestry and was looking for images to use during the winter when I couldn't go out and came across the phloem sections, cross sections, the sections of the tree that give nutrients and life to the tree. And there were patterns, and they were organic patterns, and to me they looked like fabric. And then I started incorporating these patterns into some of my compositions. Their colors, their patterns, their textures, so I limited my exploration and paintings to close-ups. So maybe a section or a trunk, but not the whole tree. And I made them large. They needed to be large to bring the viewer into the same sense of contact with trees. There are myths, traditional stories of females and women and mother and their connection to the earth. So when I see sometimes a bent tree, to me the gesture is very feminine. So I use some of the mixed media and patterns from that as, as part of the painting. Sometimes it looks like she's got a gown on, and maybe their roots have defined the shape of that gown. From there, I went to using other materials. My husband very kindly got some rounds off the butts of cedar trees, um, cut them thinly for me, and then I used those for composition. So in other words, I'm using real materials, wood materials on the surfaces. I had to change from using a canvas for those instances to um, wood panels. Some of Terrell Jones's artwork is experiential in nature. She once used their forest as the exhibition space for her paintings of trees. She would like to do that again but next time with a giant redwood tree as the subject. I hung the paintings of my trees on trees. We had the whole reception, and it was two or three hours long and had about 60 people, and they walked through the woods. Oh, I bet it was stunning. It, it was really, really fun. I would like to do it again. Taking them out of the ordinary and bringing them up, in, up front and center and that's another ambition of mine. We visited the um, redwoods in Oregon and Northern California. The base of some of those trees is 25 feet. And I have thought about trying to reproduce just the base of a tree, put the canvases up outside, string them up out here, and paint one that's life-size to scale. Well, how did you and your relationship with trees change after you started painting them? The, the idea that I have arrived at a point where I have been able to live amongst the trees and actually paint them, it's just very satisfying. It makes me happy. I learned that a long time ago, those who harvested the forest, would, they honored the trees by apologizing to the trees before they cut them down. So that brings a bit of um, spirituality between the trees, the natural world, and um, the humans. That verticalness of a tree, uh, it's protective and strong. And the environment has so much to do with, for me, and I know for other people, 
the sense of calm and grounding. Uh, if you're stressed out or if I'm stressed out or I can't seem to focus or I've got something hard in my heart to have to deal with. Um, taking a walk outdoors and in the woods is always, always helpful. It's just very comforting uh, to be amongst trees. I, I do have to say that. My statement was there's always a search and struggle between human beings and their environment almost as if who's going to win. But what we really are looking for is a, a working relationship between humans and their environment. Author Rick Bass is well known for his collections of short stories and nonfiction studies on nature. Bass also writes environmental essays, like the one called The Larch in the new book Old Growth, published in 2021 by Orion Magazine. The following interview was part of a program I produced about trees in 1999 for Soundprint. Bass's work then, as well as today, is to gain protection for the remaining forest wildlands where he lives in northwestern Montana, a mountain river valley called the Yak. It's interesting how he wound up here. Just wandering, just uh, looking for a place that was remote and a place that had this feeling to it of a fit, uh, which, which Yak did and, and still does. You know, it's so wet, uh, so cold, so rainy, so dark. Uh, it doesn't strike you immediately as a place you would ever fit, but uh, each year more, more and more, I, I find myself fitting it. It's a real nice process. Uh, I really like the dark, dense woods and, and getting into them and exploring them. How does that contribute to your writing? Any landscape influences uh, any artist or any person, I, I think, and. Certainly the landscape here is so strong and, and powerful and, and dominant that uh, one instance would be of how maybe I'm trying to work more with uh, subtlety in my stories, whereas earlier I didn't. I'm more aware of, of small things, I think, as a result of, well, in this country you have to move slower just because of its density. And as a result, you may notice smaller things by moving more slowly. It, they're really four very distinct seasons here, unlike so many places in the world. Uh, I think living, living in, the, in the cycles of the seasons here is really affects my work in, in another way. There's just, in every direction, every dimension, the, the landscape, it, I do find it affecting my work. Rick's writing studio is a one-room log cabin. You won't find a computer here, just a simple wooden desk and chair, an oil lamp, wood stove, and bookshelves heavy with books. Rick writes all of his first drafts with pen and paper here during daylight hours. In the warm autumn sunshine, we stand outside the cabin along the edge of a marshy meadow. We're surrounded by a tall, dark forest. You've got incredible diversity of trees, especially for this far north. Uh, you've got three species of pines growing with uh, in the midst of cedar and hemlock uh, forest, Doug firs, spruce, subalpine fir. 
the most common form of old growth in this valley is old growth larch, which is paradoxically the uh, rarest form of old growth left in the West. Uh, it's a very rich, lush forest. That's one of the reasons it's being logged so hard is because it grows uh, big trees and grows them everywhere, all the way up over the top of the mountains and down into the river bottoms. We have less and less wild places of where the systems of nature are proceeding at their own pace, in their own grace. This mass industrial logging that is going on up here, the road building and mass clear cutting, it has no respect for the place, it has no grace, it has nothing that's sustainable or in my mind honorable to it. It's heartbreaking to love a dense forest and see those dense forests being erased, scraped clean. Rick Bass's reverence for the Yak's ancient larch trees is actually a 30-year love story. His essay in Old Growth reveals just how exquisite this singular species is. But the big trees are again threatened. Ultimately, the presence of endangered grizzly bears may be what stands in the way of more logging. I've lived in the forested mountains of North Idaho for 43 years, so I understand what it's like to know and love a forest and then watch it be sacrificed for millions of board feet of lumber. I've also witnessed change from the timber wars of the 1990s fought between industry and environmentalists to today's more balanced work of forest service collaboratives which bring all interested parties to the table to work towards the ideal of restoration forestry but we're far from harmony with the forest. All around, privately owned woodlands are being cut down for cedar trees that fetch top dollar in the marketplace, or for developers building new homes. Human-caused climate change is also undeniable and has contributed to the loss of thousands of trees in our region from unusually destructive windstorms and forest fires. In part two of People in Trees, we'll consider some of the ways we can move forward within this challenging new reality to meet both our human needs for wood and those of the wild creatures whose only home is the forest. We hope you'll listen again. People in Trees was produced for Spokane Public Radio by the Idaho Mythweaver as part of its Voices of the Wild Earth radio and podcast series. This program is supported in part by a grant from the Idaho Humanities Council, a state-based program of the National Endowment for the Humanities, with additional funding from Idaho Forest Group. Special thanks to Jeanette Wiaskis and Rich Wanschneider for their editorial guidance. Production assistance, engineering, and original music by Justin Landtrip. I'm producer Jane Fritz. And that was part one of a two-part series. We will hear the conclusion in one week, next Monday night at 6.30 on the bookshelf. This is also available as a podcast at kpbx.org. It's our pleasure to bring this to you, especially from Jane Fritz, longtime significant producer of programs such as this, as well as many Native American issues for the past many decades 
on Spokane Public Radio 105.7.